The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You know, efforts to intimidate poll workers, to intimidate people from going to vote. We saw uh, a lot of that in the run-up to the midterm. So I think that, you know, these problems are still very, very much present. Um, but overall, I feel better now than I did as of, you know, November 1st, 2022. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 6th. 2023. Yes, it's January 6th, which means it is an anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. In fact, it is the second anniversary of the insurrection, and there has been a lot of activity in those two years to account for that terrible day. To go over it all, we thought we would bring together the Lawfare crew Natalie Orpet, our executive editor, and Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Roger Parloff, senior editors, all joined me in the virtual jungle studio to discuss what has been done across the many diverse areas in which we have sought accountability for January 6th to do justice, to tell the story and to make policy adjustments. We talked about the criminal process. We talked about the January 6th committee and the congressional storytelling process. We talked about the legislative process, which has been mostly under-discussed. And we talked about what is left to do and what has been left undone. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 6th. A January 6th anniversary. All right, folks, I want to start with a kind of overview of what has happened in the two years since January 6th, 2021, to try to account for the insurrection and the events leading up to it. It seems to me an interestingly diverse set of efforts. Natalie, why don't you get us started when you think of January 6th accountability? What is the range of activity that comes to your mind in connection with it? I'll start by giving an unapologetic plug for our narrative podcast series, The Aftermath, which is dedicated to this very question of 
how are the various ways that the government has been responding to January 6th been going? So I think the first immediate thing that comes to mind is that very shortly after the insurrection on January 6th, there were immediate discussions around what to do about Trump and the fact that he seemed to have instigated or at least encouraged the attack on the Capitol. And that most commonly is no, is associated with the effort to impeach him in his second impeachment. But there were actually early discussions as well of using the 25th Amendment or the 14th Amendment. After that, um, and those impeachment proceedings actually didn't happen until February, although Uh, which was, of course, after Trump was out of office. But the article of impeachment was voted on in the House on January 13th, which was pretty quickly after the events. Another track that happened, of course, was within the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which looked to the actual rioters and others who were involved in a criminal sense with the events of January 6th. And that entailed a lot of internal um, machinations within DOJ that we now actually know much more about, thanks to the work of the January 6th committee, which I will come to in a moment. But at the time, there was a little information from Katie Benner of the New York Times reporting on what was effectively an attempt to have an internal coup within the Department of Justice in a couple of days right before January 6th which had an impact on how the criminal investigations of January 6th rioters um, and others who may be involved in the events around January 6th, how those investigations played out, um, namely that they were coordinated out of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office and not as they perhaps could have been out of Maine Justice. Yet another track beyond that was in Congress, and this is frankly a lesser known track of accountability. There were a number of congressional committees that undertook investigations and held public hearings relating to different subjects within their jurisdictions. So this was primarily in the Senate, it was primarily the Rules and Administration Committee and the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, which conducted a joint investigation and held hearings in the House, the House Administration Committee, House Appropriations Committee, and House Oversight Committee, each considered different aspects of January 6th. Speaker Pelosi had also appointed General Russell Honore, who was very well-respected general who led the response to Hurricane Katrina to conduct a security review about the security failures leading up to January 6th. Um, And those congressional efforts actually accomplished an awful lot. There were 21 public hearings between February and May of 2021. The last track that I'll point to, of course, is I think what most people think of now as the major congressional mechanism for accountability for January 6th, which is the January 6th Select Committee, which just released its report that I'm sure we will talk about after having held a number of public hearings over the course of about a year and a half of work. And That has an interesting backstory, which we tell in an episode that I believe will have just been released by the time this podcast is available to folks. It actually started as 
an effort to put together a bipartisan national commission in the model of the 9-11 commission. And that although having had a ton of bipartisan support early on, the political winds shifted. And by the time a bill was negotiated and came to a vote on the Senate floor, it failed, which led to this very different type of investigatory body, which was the January 6th Select Committee. All right. So with that as an overview, I want to ask each of you, except Natalie, so Roger, Quinta, and Scott, to talk a little bit about what you think the major accomplishments in uh, these areas are. So Roger, you've covered the criminal space. Quinta, you have covered uh, the congressional uh, and the space and the committee within a lot of detail. And Scott, you've had your eye on uh, a bunch of legislative reforms. So in that order, Roger, Quinta, and Scott, give us a sense of what you think in your area has really been accomplished and what has not been accomplished at this point. So it's in the criminal area, the most unambiguous success has been with the rioters themselves uh, prosecuting the people that were in the restricted zone or who were in direct communications by phone or signal chat or some sort of electronic device with the rioters. There have been more than 910 federal prosecutions brought. We've had more than 440 guilty pleas already. We've had about 35 people convicted after trial. We've had four people plead guilty to seditious conspiracy, and we've had two people convicted of seditious conspiracy. And we've had uh, more than 335 people already sentenced, including one uh, one got 10 years, several two uh, sentences in the, in the seven-year realm. So uh, that's been a very I think it's a unique. It's uh, uh, the biggest investigation ever. Obviously, the the big. Uh, on the other hand, is none of the people considered most responsible for this whole thing have yet been prosecuted. But there too, uh, there's tremendous evidence of uh, a tremendous number of subpoenas that have been that have gone out and and searches that have been performed and phones that have been extracted. And we, of course, have a special counsel who's recently been appointed. So uh, the expectation is that finally some of the people most responsible uh, will also be prosecuted. But that's the thing we're awaiting. So two years out, is it fair to call the criminal process a work in progress or or do you think it is possible in a more substantial way to pass judgment on it yet either as a success or failure well for what i'd call the sort of blue collar criminals the people that engaged with the police we don't need to wait it's been a, a success but you know, I think the judges themselves have been at times uh, very frustrated with this continual parade of people going through 
who are all pawns in a sense. They were all, in a sense, very qualified sense, uh, victims themselves. They were tricked in various degrees. Um, They fell for uh, the president. They fell for the lies. And they answered his call. So until, you know, the president himself, the former president, is called to account, you can't call it a success. All right, Quinta, give us a sense of how you evaluate the, for lack of a better term, the effort at political accountability through the congressional process. I think that the January 6th committee, which may it may long rest in peace, uh, no longer exists as of the other day, uh, did a pretty astonishing job over the summer in really bringing its investigation and its conclusions to the public through uh, really engaging uh, congressional hearings, which are, is not a string of words that you usually hear together. They did a pretty astonishing job in sort of keeping things tight, telling a, a contained story that was easy to follow for people who were just tuning in, using video, audio, multimedia to keep people engaged. And all of that, I think, was extraordinarily impressive and and really made clear just how much Congress is capable of doing when everyone on a, a committee wants to work together. I'll be a little more critical about the the final report. Um, you know, we've, we've always said from the very beginning that this was a committee that was going to be really rushing toward the finish line because it was always going to have this expiration date of December 2022. And I think you can see that in the final report. There's, you know, we've we've made some jokes about typos and so on. It's labeled uh, December 00 for the date. Um, But even more seriously than that, I think that there's been a lot of reporting and you can see in the text um, material that was just left out of the report, some of it reportedly because of political calculations by members on the committee, seemingly led by uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney, who is now, of course, no longer in Congress, uh, who, according to a number of reports, was really pushing to keep the report focused on Trump personally, rather than incorporating sort of broader questions about the accountability for, you know, other Republicans who were responsible, uh, failures by law enforcement and intelligence agencies to keep track of what was coming on the 6th and to respond adequately. And I think you really see that in the final report. I will say, Ben, you and I have both been focusing on the law enforcement failure side of things. And and from that perspective, it was really disappointing uh, to see how, to some extent, the report just kind of ignores it. To some extent, it outright whitewashes and distorts, I would argue. And that certainly is in service of what you you described as a search for political accountability, that the committee is trying to point the finger directly at Trump and say, you know, this one person was responsible and really build public sentiment against him. If that's the call, I, I think I can see how they could have made that decision. I think there's certainly a power in that. Um, it's a much easier story to tell. On the other hand, I do wonder if the focus on political accountability here might have come at the cost of the committee's value as a source of truth, both, you know, for the 
the current time in terms of, you know, just telling Americans what happened. Uh, there's a lot that's still unknown about the six and for the future, um, creating a record. You know, this is going to be, this was sort of meant to be the definitive record. Uh, it turns out it's going to be a record that has a lot left out. And like I said, some of this is because I'm sure that the, the, Staff was rushing for time at the very end. We had releases of documents really going up until the last minute. Some of it was because of an explicit calculation. Um, and so I think it's it's a pretty mixed record when you incorporate that in. After the summer, I would have uh, I was pretty enthusiastic about what the committee was capable of of doing and what it had done. Now I feel a little more sort of muted and conflicted. But the fact is that, you know, if if you had told me before the committee started holding its hearings what it had been able to achieve in terms of just getting people to pay attention to the story, unveiling new information, I would have been incredibly impressed. Um, and so I do think it's worth keeping that baseline in mind. Scott, uh, one of the least known areas of accountability for January 6th has been the legislative arena because until recently, so little had happened. That's changed now. How do you, how should we think about what Congress has done in policy response to January 6th? Well, it really all boils down to one particular set of legislative response, at least in my mind, although folks can feel free to, to raise other things if I'm neglecting anything of, of particular note. And that's the Electoral Count Reform Act. A lot of the efforts that were discussed uh, and to some extent pursued, or at least people attempted to persuade former Vice President Pence, et cetera, to pursue them, were based in part on ambiguities or points of contention around the counting of the electoral votes that are ultimately used to decide the president, the distribution of authority between the vice president, between the Congress, between uh, state legislatures and state officials, and how that was resolved or has been resolved at least for the last more than a century through the Electoral Count Act of 1887, a kind of long-standing law that is not super clearly written, has a lot of ambiguities in it, but nonetheless has set the ground rules for how Congress comes together to count those electoral votes once the electors are elected by individual states and cast their ballot for who they think should be selected as president. We see saw Congress over the past two years really make an effort at boiling down and addressing some of the weaknesses that revealed themselves in 2023 legislation, but it did it very quietly. We didn't see a proposal for this, although we heard talk of conversations happening both in the January 6th committee in the House and a few other corners of the House and in the Senate through a process kind of led by Suzanne Collins, Amy Klobuchar, and kind of a group of other senators, bipartisan group, it's worth noting. They worked very quietly for really more than a year. We saw proposals come out earlier this year, a Senate proposal initially, then a slightly different House proposal, slightly more aggressive on a few fronts, uh, although somewhat less comprehensive. It doesn't cover as much things like transition, uh, the presidential transition and items the Senate tried to address in their legislation. And then we saw it the effort to get this passed really come down to the wire and again be pursued very quietly. We didn't see a lot of public discussion about what the vehicle was going to be. There was talk about would it be NDAA? Would there be some freestanding vote? And ultimately, we saw this legislation get rolled into the very last piece of omnibus legislation the 117th Congress pursued, the Consolidated Appropriations Act at the very end of the year. And perhaps one of the most notable things about it is that 
neither party in the summaries that they issued of the appropriations, the Consolidated Appropriations Act, neither party even mentioned this was in there. Although reporters who have been looking for it and other observers picked up on it pretty quickly. It's a notable set of reform. We can get a little bit into details of what they do, but the long long and short of it is, is it tries to close a lot of these loopholes that were capitalized on people saying, well, Vice President Pence can do this or other people can do that to try and shift the election results in former President Trump's favor in 2020 or early 2021, I should say. And those were the items people tried to capitalize on. They failed to do so. That's in part what led to the events of January 6th, in part because former Vice President Pence refused to play along with those plans. But it does seem likely to make them much harder. At least the rules as Congress has laid them out doesn't have the same ambiguities. And it really shifts a lot of the institutional weight away from Congress debating eligibility of certifications and back to state authorities and then to state and federal courts to adjudicate results. Um, so in theory, at least something that might be a little less subject to political manipulation of at least the type that we saw people trying to pull off in 2020. It's not airtight. It's not completely foolproof. If nothing else, a lot of the legal theories people advanced in 2020 and leading up to January 6th were premised on very broad views of constitutional power that Congress can't really do anything about because if you have those broad views, you will argue that anything Congress enacts that's inconsistent with them is simply unconstitutional. But insofar as Congress can close loopholes and really iron out ambiguities to try and make those theories harder to advance within its scope of authority, I think this legislation went pretty far in doing that pretty effectively and therefore is likely to make a difference moving forward. Although again, it doesn't address all potential circumstances that might trigger some confusion after an election or a contested election. All right. So I'm going to ask you each the same question in reverse order from which we just went. So Scott, first, are we safer from uh, January 6th than we were two years ago as a result of all this change? And to the extent that danger remains, where do you find it uh, still lurking? Yeah, you know, I definitely do think we are safer. Um, as I mentioned, the Electoral Count Reform Act really does iron out a lot of these wrinkles. You know, it tries to put the emphasis on the fact that states need to establish their rules for determining how their electoral votes are allocated. That's something the state legislatures do have authority over under the Constitution that's not really in doubt. But it really draws the line saying you need to have that worked out before election day. You can't come after the fact and start saying, oh, we're going to reverse the election results because we don't like it. That's one thing people tried to make happen in 2020. It really makes the point that the vice president's role in counting electoral votes is actually very limited and constrained. Um, it tries to really limit the ability of Congress to reverse the electoral vote outcomes by trying to disqualify certain bundles of electoral votes or electoral uh, electors through debates in Congress once it gets them in hand. So by trimming down all of these, it, it really does limit the opportunities for machinations there. Can eliminate them entirely for that constitutional reason, uh, it's worth noting. Also, the other thing it doesn't really do, um, which I argued for the committee to take on or other folks in Congress to take on, but I think was just a little bit of a too ambitious project, is it doesn't really deal with the circumstance about what happens if the whole process falls apart, um, if Congress never gets together to actually count the electoral votes, which in my mind is not impossible because really would just require one chamber to kind of sit out of the counting. And there's at least a very plausible argument, if not entirely solid, that 
that would prevent the constitutional conditions for counting electors from actually being triggered. So there's some continuing risk there. To do that, you'd really have to address presidential succession and a broad array of legal questions that kick in once the institutional position of the presidency is vacant because you have a failure of Congress's part to get to their account those votes. I do think that's something we need to think about. And frankly, there have been a lot of scholars arguing for Congress taking that on since 9-11 in various regards. And I think this is a new stripe and a new threat um, that we need to consider in taking that on. That said, I think indisputably, Congress has enacted some very common sense reforms in this Electoral Count Reform Act that strike a lot of the ambiguities we were worried about in 2020 and became worried about and makes it a much more streamlined process or at least makes it so that if people are going to try and buck that process, they're going to have to rely on very outlandish constitutional arguments. They can't capitalize on statutory ambiguities, which arguably they might have been able to do before. All right, Quinta, you're our our doom and gloom correspondent. How much safer are we, if at all? (laughs) I like that that's my brand. Um, I, I do think that we are safer. I do think I completely agree with Scott the electoral conduct reform isn't perfect, but it it's not just you know something. It's a lot. Um, I think that it it really will do a lot to close off avenues for future would be insurrectionists to kind of get these issues uh, on the table in front of Congress when it's counting the electoral vote, and that that's extremely significant. I mean, I think the other factor is that. Frankly, Donald Trump is not currently in office, and that sounds obvious, and I'm actually not being facetious there. I do think that a lot of the danger of 2020 was that Trump was making this effort to uh, stay in office from a position of enormous power. Um, He had the entire executive branch behind him. Um, He was able to lean on people, and now he's just not in that position. Um, And I I do think that trying to kind of mount an insurrection from outside is very different from trying to mount what people called a a self-coup, what he did on January 6th of trying to stay in power just because he doesn't have the machinery of the state behind him in the same way. Um, I think it's also true that he's significantly weakened after the the 2022 um, midterm elections. You know, we another factor that I think is going to prevent potentially future shenanigans is the fact that election deniers, generally speaking, lost, um, especially in swing states. So they're sort of not in a position to try anything funny. And the Republican Party is splintering right now over the question of whether or not, you know, Trump is still really the party leader. And so I think he is playing with a much, much weaker hand. And that is very significant. I mean, I don't want to let off the hook the possibility that, you know, some other Republican candidate, Ron DeSantis being the obvious one, could also try something funny. But I do think that Trump is kind of a uniquely dangerous force. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should ignore the danger of the forces that he's unleashed separate from him that, w- that will live well beyond him. But I do think that I'm less worried about, you know, a future January 6th type event happening than I was before the midterms, both because of the midterm results and because of Electoral Count Act reform. That said, I mean, you know, you always have to keep in mind the problem of fighting the last war. I'm less worried about people trying to storm the Capitol again, also because, you know, now 
the FBI, DHS, they, they know to be on the lookout for that in the future. But I am worried about, you know, other kinds of violence uh, that perhaps we, we haven't thought about yet. You know, efforts to intimidate poll workers, to intimidate people from going to vote. We saw uh, a lot of that in the run up to the midterm. So I think that, you know, these problems are still very, very much present. Um, but overall, I feel better now than I did as of, you know, November 1st, 2022. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Roger, speaking of fighting the last war, the ultimate fighting the last war is prosecuting people where you are literally punishing people for things they did in the last war. On the other hand, the theory of criminal prosecution is that it provides a deterrent to other people who might be considering similar acts. Do you think the aggregate of the January 6th prosecution so far would tend to deter future uh, January Sixers from, you know, January Sixing? (laughs) So far, yes. Um, We've seen prosecutions, we've seen convictions. What we haven't yet seen are a lot of appeals. And uh, so there are things that could happen uh, that could throw a wrench in uh, everything. Also, of course, if a Republican uh, becomes president in 2024, we need to think about how, how pardons are going to be used. And uh, on appeal, there are some obvious uh, dangers. Uh, one of the most crucial charges the Department of Justice has used corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding is under considerable pressure. There's a couple different ways of arguing that it shouldn't be used under these circumstances. And there isn't a lot of precedent for using it. Well, there's no precedent for a circumstance like this. It's been used in more than 290 cases. 70 convictions have been obtained uh, by it. So if that is overturned, Uh, That's going to be a huge wrench in the whole system, a huge setback, and an adverse signal to insurrectionists. Uh, Also, uh, another question is, will Trump be indicted? If not, uh, I think that sends a, a disturbing message to everyone. So there are some important things we don't know yet. There are issues having to do with the Insurrection Act, actually uh, older than that, this this act uh, that apparently 
that the Oath Keepers claimed gives them, interpreted as giving the president the power to call up unofficial militia. So basically all these militiamen, self-described militiamen, uh, it would give them the power to, to call them up on his behalf and uh, give him unreviewable power. If if the Supreme Court were to sort of endorse that theory, that would be a hugely dangerous thing. But uh, not to get too overwrought, so far, so good. <laughs> I would say that. All right, Natalie, are we safer? And if so, why? And if not, or or even if so, where is the residual danger in your view? Sure. So I, I think I agree with everything that folks have said so far. Um, I think there have been some really important improvements structurally. Um, I think that there have been some widely perceived sense of some accountability. But for me, one of the biggest concerns, um, which I do think may compromise our safety going forward, is sort of an intersection of a couple things people have mentioned. So, you know, as as Roger was talking about, there has been an incredible amount of success, both in terms of sheer numbers and in terms of charges and successful convictions or guilty pleas of the low-level rioters. And I shouldn't say low-level, their actions were extremely serious, many of them. There has not been criminal accountability, not only not for Trump, but also for others who acted in ways that seemed, at least, for example, to the January 6th committee to be sufficiently clearly criminal for them to recommend to the Department of Justice that they conduct criminal investigations and um, perhaps indict people. And I think there are a lot of outstanding questions about a category of people who there's some reporting are under investigation, others who there's no reporting that they're under investigation, and we just don't know what's going to happen with those people. And I think the impact of that is a continuing public sense that accountability might be working for some people, but as usual, it's not working for the political elites who really bear responsibility and at least so far, two years later, seem to be getting away with it. To me, that intersects a lot with the point that Roger was just raising about continuing questions about how individuals um, in organizations like the Oath Keepers are going to think about the Insurrection Act. And also with Quinta's point about uh, concern over political violence, even at local levels, um, to all sorts of people, including poll workers, but also perhaps representatives, um, perhaps members of Congress, perhaps, you know, secretaries of state in states that are uh, resisting pushes in the future to change election results or not act in the way that some might want with regard to allegations of election fraud. I mean, I think that our country has not had a long tradition of political violence, and I'm not convinced that that's not a, a serious risk going forward, which for me raises a concern also about whether our law enforcement at all levels is in a position to really deal with that emerging 
threat, perhaps, of political violence and extremism relating to politics, and some might say domestic terrorism. Um, Because there's still, as Quinta had mentioned, a lot of outstanding questions with regard to what happened to result in such an insufficient response from both a law enforcement, a law enforcement sense and an intelligence gathering and distribution sense in the lead up to January 6th. And I I think that, you know, there are some complications that uh, scholars and observers have pointed to with how our legal system is perhaps going to have difficulties dealing with a potential emerging threat of political violence because of how much our First Amendment jurisprudence protects political speech. My general sense to sum up is that there are a lot of ways in which we are safer. I think that some of the institutional and structural changes that we've talked about are very important. But I worry about a sort of an emergence of a new type of threat and wonder whether we are prepared for it if it does come to fruition. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that, you know, there is a temptation to see January 6th or January 6th-like events as kind of what political violence looks like in the United States now. And if we do that, as Natalie says, we risk overlooking the very real political violence that that takes place in terms of threats made to election workers, you know, public health officials, teachers. Um, there's also, of course, the attack on Paul Pelosi, which we we haven't mentioned, but I think is is an really striking example of something that was incredibly searing at the time and has kind of been lost in the fog a little bit. And I, I do agree with Natalie that my my worry is that, you know, we'll have this sort of constant low-lying violence. I will say to the federal government's credit, it certainly does seem like the FBI has gotten more aggressive and the Justice Department has gotten more aggressive in in prosecuting uh, cases where people are actually making true threats. So that's threats that are not protected by the First Amendment, uh, that some of these statements really do cross that line. And I think that is uh, a good thing uh, to see. I think my, my worry is that, you know, we have seen the, the Republican Party, uh, particularly in, in Congress, um, really get angry at Justice Department officials when this kind of thing is mentioned. Uh, there was, you know, the, the Justice Department put out a memo about prosecuting threats or keep, keeping an eye on threats against teachers and Republican members of Congress were saying, you know, this is, you know, this is, these are just parents who are I- expressing their First Amendment rights and kind of protecting these things, even though, you know, many of these these comments really were true threats um, that were not protected. And so I think that, you know, at a lower level of political violence, there is also a concern that it becomes more difficult for the Justice Department to take action against it because it has become so politicized, even if it doesn't rise to the level of the sixth. All right. So I want to talk about what the next phase of accountability looks like. And Scott, I want to start with you because, again, the legislative side was a bit of a sleeper in the first two years and I kind of don't want it to be a sleeper again. So uh, imagine that we have a Speaker of the House and that we have a, a working Republican majority in the House and a working Democratic majority in the Senate. 
Is there any low-hanging fruit like the Electoral Count Reform Act for uh, the current body as currently constituted to spend time on over the next couple of years? So it's a really good question, Ben. And, and on the legislative side, I'm not sure, frankly, I see that much that's likely to make its way through in the near future for, for two separate reasons. One, we really haven't seen strong support for even the limited measures we've seen, like the Electoral Account Reform Act, from Republicans in the House. There, it had some Republican and bipartisan support, but the most substantial bipartisan in- involvement was on the Senate side. On the House side, much closer to party line support. It gets much more tied into the politics of the January 6th committee because it's the committee that generated the House proposal for reform. Although again, they moved forward with the Senate one. Maybe that would have done better, but they're not they weren't that different. Really, it just seems like this issue is much more politicized and seen through a political lens, certainly at least by House Republicans, uh, if not in the House more generally. And that makes it less likely they're going to cooperate on things that are clearly tied to this. Maybe they're could be and will be other issues that arise about you know how the intelligence community handled threats about how you know we should be structuring national guard forces and other forces a lot of these more technical things that were within the committee's mandate but they didn't spend as much time on and and it, I do think that is kind of a shame here although I understand that choice for the simple reason that those may have been somewhat more technical issues that there may have been space to address if public light and scrutiny had been brought to them on a bipartisan basis. And and I'm not sure that there's really much drive to do that here. That intersects with the priorities that, frankly, Congress and the Biden administration uh, and Democrats in Congress are going to have to deal with. They're going to have a really narrow gate through which they're going to be able to get limited legislation in negotiation with Republicans. And they're going to have other asks before they get to these long-term reform proposals. They're going to have to deal with the debt ceiling. They're going to have to deal with well, authorization appropriations legislation later this year, but not for a while. At some point, they're going to have to deal with more Ukraine assistance and Ukraine-related legislation. Again, not for a while, but eventually down the line. And long story short, you know, I'm not sure this is going to rise to the top of the priorities for the administration, in part because it is such weird politics and, and it seems like a pretty narrow political path. So I, I'm not sure we should expect much more to come out of Congress, at least this Congress on this. Maybe a different Congress with a different composition, different political moment will find other issues they want to take up, including you know the various concerns about the electoral process um, we have seen discussed that weren't included in the reform package. But I, th- I think that's down the road. I don't think that's the 118th Congress. Let me let me try to make an alternative uh, argument here, one that I'm not at all sure I believe, but just for the sake of argument. You have a Congress that is split. It has to work on something. And both sides purport to have anxieties about the way the election was conducted. One side's arguments are frankly much more valid than the others. But um, isn't it plausible that you could have some sort of electoral form uh, grand compromise precisely because you have agitation from sort of all political corners that the electoral uh, system does not work well? 
you know, never say never. And I suppose it's possible. You know, we, we've seen there be moments where people agree, well, yeah, there are genuine election security concerns. There is funding needed to update election security to at some point, you know, within the last 20 years, there was more bipartisan openness to things like, you know, early voting uh, and more flexible registration requirements. Those have become much more politicized recently. So there might be some space at some point, but I think it's probably pretty narrow this soon after and in this current political environment. Uh, You know, again, we're seeing Republicans in the House really having a lot of trouble getting their own caucus in order, um, let alone, you know, being able to persuade some of the outliers in their caucus to get on board or, or, you know, allow proceed a different legislative proposal. And, and no, you don't need their votes, but you might need their support or tacit acquiescence to move something like that forward in the House. That's kind of the, the challenge why House leadership is so important, even in a closely held House. So, you know, you may be right. There might be something there, like maybe very limited, like around security for poll workers or, you know, physical security, cybersecurity measures that don't, don't clearly intersect or appear to allocate blame for things that happened on January 6th or, or that can feed into concerns that both parties have. But, you know, their view of the different solutions are really, really different. And I don't think that leads as much space for the sort of broad bipartisan consensus you would probably need to not only get something like this through, but make it worth the effort from the front end on the part of the Biden administration, Democrats and other folks who might want to advance it and Republicans who might want to advance it to to get through the, the dicey political situation. So I'm not that optimistic, but there may be issues that's floating out there I'm just not aware of. Um, again, I, I don't, uh, there's a lot of parts of elections law and elections policy that I don't don't track regularly. So maybe there's something I'm missing. Yeah, I just, it always seems to me like one of those issues like immigration stuff where on paper, it's pretty easy to map what a national compromise looks like. And in practice, uh, there doesn't seem to be any political constituency for that. All right, Roger, let's talk about the next phase of the criminal process. We have a special counsel we have, as you described, no indictments yet involving the political echelon. However, a lot of signs of activity in that regard. And we have a continued, we have cases now, major cases going to trial, one of which is uh, starting up now, one of which you just finished covering. I assume the the sort of blue collar cases are going to start slowing down in pace of new cases. Uh, What are you expecting over uh, the next phase of this investigation to look like? Well, you're right. The the Proud Boys case is going to start very soon, possibly even the end of this week, more more likely around Monday. Uh, that's a seditious conspiracy case and and really in many ways more important probably than the Oath Keepers case. The Oath Keepers were a symbol of the uh, insurrection. These people in military uniform walking up the steps in, in, with a, in a seemingly disciplined military style. But the Proud Boys really seem to have been allegedly, certainly, uh, more responsible for for what really happened. So that will be an important case. But of course, everyone is waiting for a step higher. 
several steps higher than that. And I think the January 6th report gave us an idea of uh, who is most in danger and uh, what charges would come into play. And if Trump should be indicted, obviously that corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding will likely be a crucial charge. And like I said, there's all these uh, appellate issues surrounding it. And then uh, uh, there are other possibilities. And, and, uh, and of course, we also don't know exactly which avenues DOJ will go down. Most likely, it seems the, the so-called false electors or fake electors route, uh, which would form the basis of a uh, uh, conspiracy against the United States and, and possibly, in addition, a false statements charge and conspiracy to commit false statements. The most interesting question is whether they would pursue the insurrection charge, uh, exceedingly rare charge to ever see brought, and uh, big First Amendment issues with bringing it. That will be the most interesting thing to see. Uh, and, and of course, this this all assumes that, you know, he is ever indicted, which is a huge if still at this stage. Quinta, so now that the committee is dead and buried, uh, is Congress done with the oversight side? I mean, it's hard to imagine the House doing much over the next year, uh, assuming it can ever organize itself at all. But, you know, there are still outstanding questions that I think reasonable senators might want to get to the bottom of, should we assume that the era of congressional focus on January 6th is over, or might it have a second life in one form or another? I don't know. So as you say, the Senate has done some investigations of its own. I think as as Natalie mentioned earlier, the Senate Rules and Homeland Security Committees released their own report on security failures in the run-up to January 6th that actually has a a fair amount of detail on what was going on with Capitol Police and the Pentagon, uh, some information about the Justice Department, though not as much. Uh, So we know that, you know, there are two committees that were interested in, in putting out a report. That report was bipartisan. And so there's less focus in it on Trump personally. It kind of avoids him to focus on law enforcement failures and and the Pentagon's uh, sort of tardiness in getting the National Guard out. So kind of the reverse of the January 6th report in a way. I do think certainly that if those committees were interested in digging in more, that there would be plenty of for them to dig into. Uh, frankly, if I were on the Senate Judiciary Committee, I would also want to uh, get some serious answers from FBI Director Christopher Wray about what on earth the Bureau was doing in advance of January 6th, because Wray really hasn't had to answer for this in any serious way. So... There's plenty to dig into. That's a separate question, though, from whether these committees actually will do that. They obviously they have plenty of other things on their on their plate, and I I do wonder if there's going to be a temptation among the Democrats to say, kind of, you know, this issue is done. We've we gave it or the House gave it to this select committee. We've put out our own reports in the Senate. You know, 
let's move on and and accomplish other things so we can point to stuff on our resumes when we come up for re-election um, and, and in the 2024 presidential race. On the Republican side, I wonder whether there's going to be just even less appetite for some kind of bipartisan investigation now uh, that that Senate Rules and Homeland Security report came out relatively early. Um, so the politics around the six were were ugly, but have only gotten uglier in the interim. And so I wonder whether there would be even less appetite among Republicans on those committees, even sort of more moderate Republicans who were previously willing to participate in these kinds of conversations. That leads me to think the answer is probably that we're done and that there won't be more. But, you know, never say never. Um, I I don't know. I, I would be really delighted to be wrong. Natalie, what do you think? Is Congress done? And if so, are there other paths of accountability and and uh, reflection that are opening up that we're not thinking about right now? Yeah, my response is actually, I think the two are intertwined, which is, I think that the amount of material that the January 6th committee has released now and made it publicly available is just a treasure trove for uh, researchers and for journalists to find their own additional threads to investigate and to build on or to simply draw attention to. And I think it's plausible that those things, namely what researchers and journalists choose to pursue and what Congress ends up looking into further, would very likely be in dialogue. So if there is sufficient attention, you know, there's splashy enough news stories or scholarly investigations or what have you, that it really creates a groundswell of support for Congress to take on an issue anew, whether it's to conduct inquiries and have splashy hearings with new witnesses that we didn't hear from in the course of the committee's work, or whether it's for the purpose of looking into new legislative fixes to problems that were sort of buried in the committee's work um, or elsewhere, that we could see a sort of combination of those two things bringing accountability, whether it's legal or sort of in the, the public discourse. We are going to leave it there. Natalie Orpet, Scott R. Anderson, Quinta Jurassic, and Roger Parloff, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, if you are not yet a material supporter of Lawfare, do yourself a favor, purge yourself of that sin. Become a material supporter at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag 
a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.